everyone, and welcome to the Able Voices Podcast. I'm Dr. Rhoda Bernard, Founding Managing Director of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, and I am proud to present this podcast featuring disabled artists and arts educators. We are inviting artists with disabilities to be guest hosts for the Able Voices Podcast. Today's guest host is Lawrence Clark. Lawrence Clark is an award-winning stand-up comedian, actor, performer, screenwriter, and playwright who is based in the UK. He was selected for the BBC Writers' Room Writers' Access Group and for Screenwriting 2021. Lawrence's spec script, Wheeling and Dealing, has just been optioned by Chapter One Films. He won the Triforce UK TV Writers' Slam 2021 out of 1,600 submissions, and consequently his comedy pilot, Perfect, was broadcast. Lawrence has written several other scripts and screenplays, many of which have been made and performed. He is also the chair of Triple C, a community interest company led by disabled artists. Triple C aims to drive up the role of disabled people in the performing arts and the role of the performing arts in the lives of disabled people. Triple C also runs Disabled Artists Networking Community, or DANC, project, which provides an extensive program of networking events, mentoring, and masterclasses for disabled writers and other artists. Hello, and welcome to the Able Voices podcast. My name's Lawrence Clark, I'm a playwright, screenwriter, and stand-up comedian. And today, we're honoured to be joined by actress and activist, campaigner, and all-round very lovely person, Charlie Houston. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Lawrence. Oh, thank you. I like that intro. <laughs> I say that cheekily because uh, Lawrence is a good friend of mine as well. So, um, let's start at the beginning, Chess. So... <laughs> How did you get started as that, sir? Very blooming slowly, Lawrence, because I was disabled. Um, <laughs> well, no, actually, um, I was non-disabled, actually, when I got my equity card at 18. I was one of those annoying kids who always, always stood at the front of the class writing plays that I made my mates listen to, my classmates, which means I was quite a geek at school. And then I went to youth theatre. Then I got my equity card at the age of 18, because in the UK back then, you had to do certain jobs to get an equity card, uh, the union card. And I was the front end of the pantomime horse, Cinderella's double and a wolf. I was very proud of myself. I was quite poorly and I'd sleep between every single show. And it, uh, yeah, uh, it was quite painful. But I um, then I became a wheelchair user during a the time at drama school i was about to become a wheelchair user while i was at drama school and then i didn't get employed in the same way as my non-disabled peers so really actually i think quite early on i became a very accidental activist in that way that i then i was always making my own work um and i also started to make i formed my own company to sort of challenge the blocks that we face as uh Deaf, disabled, neurodivergent creatives, even back then. So, yeah. Go back to um, since you're leaving drama school, mm -hmm. everyone's trying to get an agent, get noticed. Uh, I guess. 
Oh, was that for you? It was one of those things like everybody had a mentor when they left drama school, but they didn't get me one because they didn't know of any disabled ones. Because this was in the late 90s, and I think there'd only been Julie Fernandez on TV as we'd seen it in the UK. Um, so there wasn't any role models, and every single agent I wrote to said, sorry, we don't know how to represent you. And so then I accidentally, my mum came across Grey Eye uh, because the old theatre director from Grey Eye, which is the main disabled theatre company in the UK, had become the artistic director at our local theatre. That was Ewan Marshall. So I went and met him and he was very kindly, gave me some advice. And I then started to write to all the uh, disabled-led drama, theatre companies, etc. And then started working there. And I worked pretty much non-stop for... I didn't get any job at all for about three years trying the mainstream. And then I worked pretty much non-stop in the disabled world. And every single job I had, I wrote to almost every single casting director, director, agent in the country. And they all still kept not employing me or saying they couldn't represent me or just didn't reply. Quite a lot of them didn't reply. And then I made a decision not to work in disability arts anymore and just try for the mainstream because I was just going round and round in circles and I wasn't career, career progressing. So, so uh, uh, roughly when was that? Probably about 2003, I think. Um, and then I, f but things had slightly changed a little bit as in they'd started to employ well, as in you'd probably get two auditions, two or three auditions a year as a disabled actor. Um, ridiculous situations like I was auditioned in Leicester Square because I couldn't get in the spotlight building. I was in, auditioned in corridors. But what I think was really useful, I figured out from that, was that I stuck in people's minds because they're a bit embarrassed. <laughs> and if you're quite friendly and polite about it. They go, oh, you know, she at least she wasn't stropping. You know, it sort of made, I realised looking back, it sort of, it, it wasn't a bad thing, but at the time, I only ever got auditioned for wheelchair users. Really, it was interesting because I think my career, because I've been in my current job for 14 years as an actor. So I think things have changed an awful lot in the last decade. So the, I'd say I didn't, I didn't get an agent until I had 12 telecredits, um, which sort of shows oh. how ridiculous it was. And I got every single job myself. And that, that writing off, continually writing off all the time and sticking yes. to people's lives. So how did you get those tw 12 jobs? I wrote to everybody, ev every cast director in the country every single time I had a job or every few months if I hadn't had a job and say just new things. I think it's much easier now because you can create your own work. So I'd probably be making a lot of YouTube videos or whatever. But just back then, it was it was it was even writing with stamps and envelopes and things. Um, but then it meant that whenever they occasionally got a character that was a wheelchair user, I'd stay in their mind, so I'd go and audition, and then I got my jobs that way. Then I had, I'd think, out of most of the things on my CV, I only had one job that wasn't about being a wheelchair user, and that was Little Britain being in the computer says no scene and it was because I'd gone and auditioned for a wheelchair-using part in Little Britain. They went, oh, well, yeah, do you want to read something else? So I did. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had lots of jobs that which were about different medications, different um, making people feel better because they were a wheelchair user and life's still worth living, that sort of thing, really. 
Yeah. And it, because then I think in the, in the early 2000s, they didn't audition you as a disabled actor unless there was a disabled actor mentioned and it was specifically wheelchair users back then, I think. No, um, Jamie, my youngest son, still asked me to put on those little Britain sketches. Oh, bless him. He watched them over and over again. I think because he knows you and you're in them and he loves you anyway. But yeah. Oh, well, I, I was so good because I was in this one um, called Lou and Andy where. He always goes, I don't want that one. And he brought me as his girlfriend. He went, I don't want that one. And he pushed her down the hill. And I was, thought I was going to get pushed down this hill. And I was so excited about doing this stunt. And then I saw a man in a wig in a wheelchair and realised I wasn't going to get to do that. And somebody else was going to do it. And I was like, oh. Mm. Uh, so from there, what, what was like the... What was like the, the next set? What, what was like the next big thing? Well, I'm guessing, what was it on um, with Stupid? Or was um, it later? No, I'm with Stupid was earlier, I think. Um, I'm with Stupid was one of the, was the first, I think it still is the only blooming disabled-led full-length sitcom that had been on television. And I got a regular part in that. And that was brilliant. That was amazing. That was so empowering. That feeling of going to work for, I think it was about seven weeks worth we did it. Of, and you were in it, weren't you? And, and seeing in, on base, in the base camp, having these four trailers with very makeshift long ramps built up to them. Yeah, it was, it was so empowering to be in the... Because you could I learned an awful lot about television, but also about being in something... When you're just a day player, you don't learn that much because you've got so much information to take in. Whereas being in something regularly, you learn about the infrastructure and how it all works, and you have more time to learn off the other actors around you. But my overriding memory was the cold. <laughs> yes, it was it, blood freezing. Was it like blowing January? And it, it was a derelict. Home, so there was no heating. There were just these little electric heaters that we had to gather. It, it was ice without a dickin. <laughs> yeah, it was over, and it was so cold. And that pain, I'm a chronic pain sufferer, and it makes yeah. my pain go so much worse. Whereas now, I mean, I'm in the opposite where I work at Coronation Street. They give me heated leggings, I've got a heated seat from pad for my wheelchair I've got a heated jacket all things that they put into my clothes and they bring me like lots of little hot water bottles to snuffle around my my person and stuff so the world's very different and that was nothing against that job but I think people understand as much more because that job was kind of like the forefront of change in a way wasn't it because oh, yeah I mean I remember doing a, a television job oh gosh just before that with Paul Henshaw as the lead of that. And, oh, no, it might have been that after that. But um, the head of the BBC came down to the read-through because they'd never seen a disabled person hadn't been on the nine o'clock slot on BBC One ever. So the main television channel, they hadn't had any disabled actors at, after the watershed. So it was, quite, it was called A Thing Called Love, and it was like this was a massive thing for the BBC. And you just think, I mean, we have come on an, an awful long way from that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? From, you know, I used to 
going to jobs and the lack of understanding and the, and the blatant ableism people didn't even realise they were displaying in just the way you were talked to. I mean, I think the attitudinal shift is massive, really. But things like, you know, having a, a, a disabled toilet as your own green room and they put a mat down in here in case you fancy a lie down in the toilet. Or <laughs> we, we've, uh, we've put a tent sort of area outside the makeup because uh, the green room and all the social spaces are up two flights of stairs. So we thought you might want to sit outside makeup in the car park <laughs> in the rain on your own. You know, it is it, massively shifted. Um, but the whole time I've run companies to try and make the change myself as well, because I think you realise you need to, and we all need to, alongside, I think so many of us in the creative industries who, who are deaf, disabled, or neurodivergent, realise you have to do some form of activism, some form of helping towards that social change to enable you and those behind you to have the career that you want to have. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because I think our generation, in a way, we've sort of missed the boat on some of these things because we, we, we're still paving, the, but those before us paved the way so we could be educated. Those before them paved the way, you know, so that we didn't have to live in care homes. You know, there's so many, each generation of disabled people are, are paving the way for the next one towards equality, which it's getting closer and closer. And I, I truly believe our industry is the way to create social change, but it's also been the one that's creates the prejudice and the, the bias and all that other because it tells it currently tells our stories in very negative ways. So I guess the next big thing was Coronation Street. And because this is an international podcast, can you tell us what Coronation Street is? Yeah. Um, I I think, yeah, Coronation Street came for me in 2010. I graduated drama school in 1997. So I had 13 years of perfecting my craft. And then um, Coronation Street is the main continuing drama so, or soap opera in the UK. It was, it was the first. It's been going 63 years now, I think, which is phenomenal for a television program. And it's... It's watched by several million people, I think five or seven million people. Currently, in its heyday, 30 million people used to tune in when there was only three channels in the, in the UK. It's, a, it's sort of like, it's a drama based in the north around a street and the people who live there. And I am very, very fortunate to have been working there. I, I'm in my 14th year now, and I learned so much from everybody I work with, and it's so warm and friendly, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant place to work. Uh, you, you were the first disabled actress, were you on there? I wasn't, I wasn't, because there was Ali Briggs, who's a deaf actor who'd yeah. gone before me. There was a non-disabled woman who played a disabled a wheelchair user years before that. More, more but I was, Yes, you remember that. Why? I, I had the same wheelchair as well. <laughs> it, it used to annoy me because she goes like the bottom of a flight of stairs and it will cut away to another scene and then cut back and she'd be at the top of the stairs. <laughs> and then, I know that we all check. Can't do that. 
<laughs> I think most wheelchairs can't do that. But that's the difference, and I think that's why it's so important to have lived experience on television because it's like actually telling the truth and showing our stories in the in the correct way. I was really fortunate because I did for years and years, and I presume this has been everywhere in television. They had conferences about inclusion and disability inclusion, and I remember being at a conference probably. God, 2007, so three years before this, where the producer of Coronation Street said, we will have a disabled character. We will have a disabled character for six months. And then when the audition came, I, you know, ensured I, I got an audition and they'd had, they did a couple of days auditions where to see whether people could improvise, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they were just trying to acclimatize themselves to the fact of employing us because then it took another year and a half before they then sent out a script and you had 24 hours to learn it and you were doing a screen test and they screen test 10 men 10 women and if it was a man they're going to the character would be working in the taxi firm if it was a woman she'd be working in the factory which is interesting even now because that sort of shows how long ago it was because today that wouldn't i don't think it'd be as, as, as sex is you know sex driven as job role in that in that respect and i was lucky enough to get the job and have my contract renewed before I went on screen. So they extended it to a year before I even went on screen, which was brilliant, and then extended again. And now, yeah, every year I get that nail-binding worry, but luckily I keep being renewed, and now I'm in my 14th year. I guess, you know, it's incredibly popular, isn't it? So mm. having, having a disabled character so prominently... And something that's watched and loved by millions of people. Well, what, what do you think some of the effects have been of that? It has been phenomenal. I'm just grinning because I just had one very recently where there's a new wheelchair-using uh, presenter on Blue Peter, a children's programme, and I had the fortune to bump into her at Media City and we were both like, oh, it's you, you know, chuffed. you always get chuffed to meet another wheelchair user, don't you? And she said she tuned in and watched my storylines every time there was one because a she had my disability and b there was nobody really on television like her and she said that inspired her to trust that she could go and do her job and so many young people have come to me and said even um steph lacy who's in our company triple c said that it made her family understand her disability from watching my storylines and that's what i think's been in fact quite a lot lot of you know it feels that people have had time to have a reference point and it's that it's not role model per se it's that reference point of the fact that disabled people do do these things i i used to be an ambassador stand for ambassador for lots of different places but for uh, a local disabled school and i used to go in and do drama with these young people and then they changed they changed uh, the class name to my surname because and the teacher kept saying she realised how the parents had altered their opinions just by watching my character on Coronation Street because they realised that their young person could achieve whatever they wanted to achieve. And so I think that's really interesting because it's twofold because through drama you're talking about the lived experiences so people can see you as, you know, not less than and all those other things that people sillily do to us. But also what it does is make people realise you can live your full potential into your dreams. And that's one of the things I think that we, we fight for a lot, don't we? To enable people to see disabled people as equal, to know that they have full potential to do whatever anybody else does. So, yeah, it, 
it's been a massive honour and it's lovely to know that by doing your job you've impacted on other people to you know to live their lives in a different way that's that's a massive honour isn't it it's a protection on triple c time but which you started and uh, um, both of us work for along with lots of other disabled artists now so tell us about what, where, where we came from oh, I, I, I used to run a a few years out of drama school, I set up a different company called Big House Theatre Company, and we did plays. We did things like went into youth, created youth accessible youth theatres, and it was that recognition that you have to make a change in this society for it to make a difference. And I've always worked with young people, and also I think during my career, having figured out what the blocks were and being told things like you're the only person, we didn't know where to find you, et cetera, et cetera. And people treating you like the only one. And I, for a long time, thought about we needed to come together as a community and also that we need to do this sort of thing out for young people to make that change so people can go to youth theatre, et cetera, et cetera, which I'd already tried to change and had done in, I'd done lots of different things in my career that to try and make these changes. And I've been doing a lot of things through ITV, the, the, broadcaster who I worked for at Coronation Street where we'd done things like drama, a day's workshop for disabled actors to get audition tapes but also to educate and give people training about how to apply you know how to audition technique how to get themselves out there more so it was it was that thing of more empowering different people and we did that then again we did it at Emmerdale that's where Melissa we met I met my colleague she came on on that opportunity our colleague at Triple C and then I'd been working, we both have the very same anecdote about this, Lawrence, which is what actually kicked off Triple C for me, was I, for a long time, had worked between acting jobs in doing drama for deaf, disabled, neurodivergent young people, either in uh, SEN schools or in holiday clubs, et cetera, et cetera, because I always believed I'd such, I loved it and it was such an, you know, an empowering job for both sides and also the fact that when you do drama with disabled young people and you see this massive change of confidence that's never going to go away again, you know, people talk or communicate in different ways just after a weekend of, of drama. So I was always doing that and then this young woman got in touch and said, I've been told, now she didn't die but she was told I'm going to die because this operation they won't give me because I'm disabled on her back. And she said she just wanted to thank me for all those workshops I did with her that changed the way she had her confidence. And I know she contacted you to say something very similar for what you'd done with her. And I was driving to work the next day and I was like, every time I do these things externally, things change through management and, and the momentum gets lost. So I was like, well, why don't we do it? You know, why don't we? You know, start off by creating youth theatre, build all these things that I want to do, pull, do something that pulls the community together. And I, what I did was I then contacted some uh, young disabled people I'd worked with in the past who I knew wanted to go into the arts, who never did, like Monique, who still works with us now at Triple C. I know when I worked with her as a, a young person, I think she was 14, she always wanted to go into the arts. 
And when contacted back in her early 20s, she hadn't, you know, listened to what school and her mum had told her and the system we live in that said you had to go into business management and all this sort of stuff. And she leapt with both hands at the idea of starting this company. And I asked my colleague, Jed, who I went to drama school with and I knew would be brilliant with young people. And his wife then said, oh, I could help with admin. And so it was a lot of... It was a, me and Lydia, who also worked as my support worker, and thank goodness, I mostly employed my support worker to help me set up a company for a good couple of years. And she did a lot of, a lot of hours for free and a lot of, you know, running around. And then I met Melissa. We'd been going a good, almost a year. I'd met Melissa, and Melissa had that same drive. And she joined, she moved to Manchester and joined, and then we formed Dank together as a team the five of us and you know we'd we'd set up we'd done funding we got a name a a lot of there's a lot of legwork to a a company so i was doing a lot of hours for free and because i could because i already had a job and i was the job wasn't full-time i could do a lot of the admin hours where everybody else had to go and get paid to do those sort of things and then i think it was about two years in we got some funding and then melissa could give up her job as a teaching assistant and came and helped me with the, she was supposed to take over the admin, but then actually the admin just doubled. So she carried on yeah. paid and I carried on unpaid and it, mm-hmm. it grew and it grew. But then it, you, you know, then we started Dank, the Disabled Arts Network community. And it was this idea of pulling the community together. We didn't know what it was. We just knew there's a way of pulling the community together so people know where to find you. And also to empower you as a community member. So you had a community because we all felt like lots of individuals. And I always remember being dead excited and empowered when I, when I you know, met people or an audition situation or a, a workshop situation. So it was about creating something like that, that connected us all. And also this idea of having a talent finder so people knew where to find us. And what us five guys did was come up with this idea of a networking event, conversation event to go, okay, let's look at what the blocks are in the industry and look at the solutions and then we'll create the solutions to those blocks. And I think you came to the first one, didn't you? And we did not know what was going to happen because we, we put this out there and then suddenly 60 odd, 70 odd disabled, deaf disabled neurodivergent people from all, it came from all over the country to this theatre and we started and it was so empowering and it was so wonderful. And um, then a few, we, we did a, a few other arts organizations and what was exciting was because the concept was twofold the arts organization would understand what it was like to have a large number of disabled people in its venue to see where the creaking points were see what because those places design it so there's only two of us ever want to come into a building at one time so that was really useful but what was you know it was about listening to what everybody else's thoughts were because we all knew we had our experiences what the blocks were and our solutions, but together as a community, those blocks and solution conversations meant that the industry, we always brought change makers to these meetings to have the conversations about what the blocks were. So then they went away, learned. And what was really empowering was people come into those meetings, sometimes thinking they knew everything about, uh, and that we employed us enough. And then they go away, you know, really empowered to go, no, this really does need to make a change. And we, you know, that started off and then lockdown happened. I think the one just before lockdown, we had 117 members of the community and 17 industry guests. And that's when one of the main broadcasters said, no longer will we 
employ non-disabled people to play disabled roles. So that was, but these key changes kept happening from these conversations that we had. And then lockdown happened. And luckily I'd just been at a BAFTA event on Zoom. Never heard of Zoom at the time when we're on Zoom now. And I, I was sort of spent lockdown, uh, the night of the announcement of lockdown going, right, how do we change, how do the changes? And I, I did, because I've got one of those, realised now it's a neurodivergent brain. But then I just, everybody used to just say, just thought too quick and too much. And figured out how we'd trans, transpose it over. And I think within a week, me and Melissa put out and hosted our first webinar. And since then, we've held over 300 and odd webinars and masterclasses. Oh, a very key point. Lawrence Clark was probably about a year or so in. Somebody called Lawrence Clark, came up and went, I think you need a bit of help to uh, form this. And I'd quite like to uh, come in and help and uh, chair your board, set your board up, you know. And I thought that was so, because I'd always heard about, I knew you and I'd invited you because just to say, you know, when we started the community, what I did was I'd go on Twitter and like put wheelchair comedian, uh, deaf comedian, you know, go through every job type, every disability type I could think of and get that and then send everybody the invite. And I'd spend days and days doing this, which was great on a pain day because you, you're still achieving something by clicking and pasting. And you came up after having come to a few and just said, I, you know, up for helping. And then you helped us put together a funding bid to get somebody official to come in <laughs> and help us run the company. And, you know, at that point, we, we were still a bit hand to mouth. Loads of us, everybody was doing so many hours for free. You know, a few people were getting paid mm. here and there, but not, not the correct amount and not the hours they were doing. And it's just grown and grown and grown. Now there's nearly 1,700 of us and we are partnered with all the main broadcasters and streamers and we're having key conversations. And I think it's the same principle. We don't want the disabled person to go into the job being the educator and what we want to try and do is set the stuff up around it. And it's, and, you know, it's phenomenal that the differences we're making and so many people being employed and being part of that community. You know, it means that we're paying, I, I think we just had another conversation in house again today about how we ensure the community is community led again, keep reminding ourselves it's community led because it's grown so much is ensuring that it's never it's always got to feel open and everybody's always got to feel whenever they join it that they can still have a voice and it's about those people with more experience sharing their experience you know throwing the ladder behind you as much as you possibly can whether that's about elements of work finding employment for people or sharing your knowledge of access because it'll take every time any of us start a job there's a lot to learn about how you implement your access and things like that so the more we can share those and you you do this brilliant thing called lived experience webinars, which you, you started the idea of, you know, and that's what's so brilliant is, I mean, there's millions of things you've done, but that like that, for example, means that we now have key disabled, deaf, disabled, neurodivergent people in our industry sharing their lived experiences with their community. And that is so empowering, things like that, you know, and it's, each person brings new elements to it. I mean, there's so many different things we've all done, and, you know, yeah. She said, so, yes, so, like, <laughs> not that you can't really tell that was a whisper on a podcast, mm. but, um, like, you know, you, you've pushed that, that we go to, to run the access coordinator training and, you know, ensured that we've done that partnered with other disabled-led organisations, so it ensures that it's these key changes in our industry are disabled-led and 
not elitist down to one organization, you know, and that knowledge is shared. Uh, and, and it's more that the community owns these things. And, and, and those are really, really important things that I think we push through on because the more we share our knowledge and share how, how to employ us really, isn't it? it? Takes a fear and doing it in a really nice, warm, responsive way. That's always been my ethos behind you will see and Dank was take this warmth, friendly approach that, you know, stops it being a conflict and takes takes the um confrontation about out of change and it, yeah it sort of worked hasn't it because we won the BAFTA last year as well so it's gone all right <laughs> yeah i was doing well i was a lot buzzy um we're doing at the end we should probably say if people want to find people see where do they go uh we're on Social medias at dank underscore UK. I think we're also under uh, Dank's D-A-N-C, which is the Disabled Artist Network community. I think the same is on Instagram. You can go to our website, which is triple C, T-R-I-P-L-E-C dot org dot UK. And sign up to our newsletter. Sign up, become part of the community because it's that, you know, we have regular meetings. We also have a, a weekly newsletter of opportunities. Um, an in-house newsletter. We're always running webinars, masterclasses, get-togethers. It's just about keeping everything being a two-way conversation and an ongoing conversation of skill sharing within our community because we've always been ignored or left out of opportunities. So it's about ensuring those opportunities come directly to the community, but also creating them, them within ourselves. Finally, then, if you could talk to yourself at 18, if you could talk to a younger Tony, what advice would you give her? Get a wheelchair quicker. Don't listen to the doctors. I know it bloody hurts. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You get used to this level of pain. It will actually become normal and you'll be fine. I think don't worry so much. The world, because the world's. Weirdly, don't you think the world's a very different place to when we were 18 in the way that they treat us? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. So yeah. I think even if I'm talking to my 18-year-old self who existed now, by the time you're in your mid-40s, that the world is very different. But have confidence. Trust yourself. It will be okay. You will, get to, you will still be able to do what you want to do. Don't listen to those people who are telling you, you can't, you're not capable of anything now. You've got a disability because they're wrong. And trust yourself. Do whatever you want. Well, I did. So, but yeah, it's not always going to feel like it hurts this much. You will just get used to it. 30 years later, agony's fine. <laughs> I suppose, weirdly, because it is. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's things when you're starting out or you're getting used to disability is actually you're taking on other people's opinions of what that is and how terrible and tragic that is. And it's actually none of those things. And actually, it's really empowering. And being disabled has given me some of the best encounters that I would have never had without it. And I think it's shaped me to be a, a very, I mean, I don't know, I probably might sort of hopefully have had the same personality, but I think what it's done is, is taught me a, a lot of generosity and kindness of spirit, you know, and it, it's taught me how to navigate difficult situations. And I've learned a lot quickly because of my disability. So... All the rubbish that they, the non-disabled world say about disability is wrong. And actually, disability is getting cooler and cooler, isn't it? That, you know, it's not... I was with a 
in, I was in a convoy of five wheelchair users the other night. And one of my friends went, I always feel really empowered being with, out with uh, other wheelchair users. And isn't it, we're actually getting quite cool nowadays, aren't we? Which, yeah. So trust it's okay, I suppose, is what I'd say to myself. Thank you so much for this. Thanks. That's a pleasure. Nice to natter to you, Lawrence. So uh, this is my last podcast as host. It's been great. This has been such fun. And thank you to Rodo and Daniel for facilitating this. And I just think this podcast is an amazing way of, of finding out about other disabled artists all over the world and learning from their experiences. Um, so thank you for making me a part of it. Able Voices is a production of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, led by me, Dr. Rhoda Bernard, the founding managing director. It is produced by Daniel Martinez del Campo. The intro music is by Kai Levin, and our closing song is by Sebastian Batista. Kai and Sebastian are students in the arts education programs at the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education. If you would like to learn more about our work, find us online at berkeley.edu slash B-I-A-A-E, or email us at B-I-A-A-E at berkeley, that's L-E-E, dot E-D-U.